Good morning, Christ Prez. You know, in this season when our news feeds are consumed with updates about the pandemic and vaccines, it's easy to forget that there are so many other things still going on in the world. One of those things is the horrible civil war in Ethiopia. Right now, a war wages between Ethiopia's new government and its old one. The war has spilled into the towns and countrysides with machete and knife-wielding men raiding communities and basically killing at will. I recently heard a news report about the almost 50,000 Ethiopians who have fled as refugees to Sudan. Many are now living in camps and barely surviving under the dire conditions there. People have lost everything, homes, money, jobs, family. Mothers have been separated from their children as they have fled from the murderous squads that roam through their streets. The refugees make food out of bits of sorghum. They build shelters out of grass. In the report I heard, I learned that in the middle of one refugee camp, there's a young artist named Fitzum Kidanamarium. He's spending his days making small sculptures out of rock. One of the sculptures has the face of a lion on one side and the face of a woman on the other. He says, the woman is forgiving and respectful. The lion, like warring men, will lash out at the slightest touch. He says he spends hours sculpting this rock, dreaming of a different world where humans are less like lions. You know, it has has often been the artists and poets who help us dream a vision of a better world. Because we're so often consumed with what is, we need artists to help us see what could be, to stir our imaginations, to help us see something hopeful beyond the raw realities of daily life. People like Fitzum are not just making art, they are sculpting hope, cultivating the imagination for a better future. The cynical among us might think it's a false hope, an imaginary hope. We might think he should be out trying to help his family scavenge for food instead of spending his time chipping away at rocks. But John the Seer, the author of Revelation, would disagree. Fitzum actually stands in the tradition of John, who here at the end of the book sculpts for us a vision of a different world, a better world. John is a prophetic artist. He's a brilliant poet. And drawing on rich Old Testament imagery, he paints a picture for us of the future world, which is what we're waiting for in the season of Advent. Fleming Rutledge writes this. She says, quote, The church lives in Advent, the time between, the time being, as Auden calls it. We stand in a dark place, no question about it, but all the faculties of the faithful are straining toward the watchman who stands on the heights with his face toward the coming dawn. In a deep sense, the entire Christian life in this world is lived in Advent between the first and second comings of the Lord, in the midst of the tension between things the way they are and things the way they ought to be. Close quote. We're waiting in this tension. And Revelation, especially these last chapters of the book, can help us in our waiting. Revelation pulls back the curtain and says, here's your future. Here's what's on the way. You can't see it yet, but it's coming. Live your life today in light of this unseen future reality for which you wait. We've seen that as we wait for Jesus, we're waiting for the ultimate defeat of evil. 
And we've also seen that we're waiting for the ultimate party, the wedding feast of the Lamb. This week, we see that when we wait for the coming of Jesus, we're waiting for nothing less than a new world, a new heavens and earth. So let's take a little guided tour of this new world. What do we see? Well, this week, let's notice seven things John tells us will not be in the new creation. And then next week, we'll focus on the one who will be in the new creation. And both weeks, I think we'll see the new creation will be very, very good. So this week, let's look at what's not there. Seven things that aren't in the new creation. First, verse one, the sea was no more. Now, some of you love the sea, and this might sound like a real bummer. No sea in the new creation. But remember the significance of this. For John's first century readers, the sea was a place of chaos and evil. It represented dark and evil powers at work to undo us and to overwhelm God's good world. And so the point here is not that there won't be any surfing or sunbathing or big bodies of water. The point is that this dark, chaotic, threatening power will be no more. Which leads to the second observation John makes about what is missing from the new creation. In verse 4, we learn that there will be no more death and no more mourning, crying, or pain. Can you imagine? It's so hard to imagine this. I mean, these are some of the most salient features of our world. Especially during the pandemic, they've been front and center. Every day we're reminded of the toll. Every day thousands mourn the thousands who have died. We've all been touched by death, mourning, crying, and pain. I mean, some of you live with chronic pain day in and day out, and it's just unimaginably hard. We live out our lives in the presence of these dark realities. But in the new creation, they are no more. It's hard to imagine. Hundreds of years earlier, Isaiah had a um, vision of the new creation, and he expressed the wonder of it as best he could. In Isaiah, we read, No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days, for the young man shall die a hundred years old. The point in Isaiah's vision is clear enough. Death's rule will be significantly weakened. But John's vision is even clearer. Not just weakened, utterly removed. Death shall be no more. The Apostle Paul wrote that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And here, in this vision of the new world, we see that it has finally happened. Death itself has died. The third conspicuous absence from the new creation is sinners and sin, which makes sense. If the wages of sin is death and those wages aren't being paid anymore, the work that earns those wages must have stopped. It must be finished too. Sure enough, in verse 8, we learned that the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars will be excluded from the new world. Which sounds a lot like you'll be excluded from the new world, and I will too. But no, I think John is giving us a vivid warning, and he's reminding us of the importance of faithful endurance, the importance of following the Lamb wherever he goes. Here again, family, we're left with trusting Jesus trusting that he will be the one to deal with our cowardice and faithlessness, our immorality, and our idolatry.
The only people in the new creation will be those who have been judged by Jesus and conformed to his image. And so it's actually profoundly good news that in the new creation, we won't need to fret about our sinning. We won't need to fear being sinned against. We, we won't need to worry about hurting others or being hurt by others. In the new creation, we'll all be less lion-like. The next absence John mentions would have been especially surprising to his first audience. There's no physical temple in the city. Now remember, the temple was the place where God chose to dwell. The temple is the place where you encounter God. I mean, having no temple doesn't make sense uh, from the Jewish perspective. Well, we learn immediately um, in verse 22 that the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. In Ezekiel's vision of the future, we got this detailed description of a physical temple. And, and we might wonder, how is it not in the new creation? Well, this is why, because the temple just is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. There's no need for a temple because God's presence fills the whole new world. It's like the whole new world is the temple. Well, in fact, that's exactly what John shows us. In verses 16 and 17, when John describes the dimensions of the city, he describes a perfect cube. In the Old Testament, do you remember what has the dimensions of a cube? It's the Holy of Holies. John's point is that the new city is the Holy of Holies. The new creation is the temple. There's no physical temple because God's glorious presence fills the entire world. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the next conspicuous absence is darkness. Throughout scripture, light is so often associated with the power and presence of God. In the opening verses of Genesis, remember, we read this, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light and there was light. So the very first thing God does after creating the heavens and the earth is he creates light. And what's really interesting is that God creates light before he creates any source of light that we know of. The way Genesis tells the story, light exists before the stars and sun exists, which is a way of making a theological point, I think, that ultimately God himself is the source of light, which is exactly what we see here at the end of the Bible. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. You see, maybe there will be a sun and moon, maybe not, but in either case, they won't be needed for light. God's glory has sufficient light for the whole world. You know, here and now, darkness is our reality. The Bible never tries to cover over that fact never tries to paint an unrealistically rosy picture of our situation. It never says, cheer up, things aren't so bad. No, there is real darkness. The imagery of darkness is a way of highlighting the absence of shalom. It's a way of saying, things are not as they should be. Think, think of some of the ways that our world is walking in darkness. I mean, we experience it at the level of creation, natural disasters, droughts, floods, disease, pandemics. We experience the darkness in our relationships with other people, wars, oppression, injustice, exploitation. We experience it in our relationship with ourself. 
loneliness, anxiety, despair, guilt, sickness, sin, and death. And we also, of course, experience it in our relationship with God. I mean, how many of us have the kind of prayer life we want? How many of us feel close to God 24-7? How many of us just trust the gospel easily and without doubt? How many of us love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? See, here and now, the darkness can feel downright pervasive, but the dawn is coming. The light of the world has come and will come again. In the new creation, darkness has been banished and we will live in the brilliance of the glory of God. The next detail John draws our attention to, uh, the next absence, is the absence of closed gates. When the new Jerusalem descends, we learn that there are gates on every side of the community. This is like the ultimate gated community. Now, what's the purpose of having gates? Gates are meant to provide protection and safety. Gates are meant to keep people out. The only reason to have gates is so that you can control who gets in and who stays out. But in verse 25, we're told that these gates will never be shut. They're on every side of the city, and they're always open, which means that in the new heavens and new earth, God's people will be totally safe, completely secure. We won't need locks on the doors. We won't have to worry about evil assaulting us there. There will be nothing to fear. Nothing violent or destructive is coming into the community. The world's broken relationships will be transformed into a city of security and delight. It's, it's a beautiful promise of relational restoration and eternal hospitality. It's like, finally, the people of God will have fulfilled their mission to be a blessing to the nations. True Israel always existed to bless the Gentiles, to bless the foreigners, to bless the people who aren't already in the community. And now we see the fulfillment of it. No one will be excluded and will have nothing to fear. The gates are always open. And finally, we learn that in the new creation, no longer will there be anything accursed. Or literally, no longer will there be any curse. This calls to mind Genesis chapter 3 and the curse of the fall. You know, so much of the end of the Bible actually calls our mind back to its very beginning. It also calls to mind a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament, that blessings flow to the obedient and faithful, and that the curse falls on the disobedient. And so, for example, we read this in Deuteronomy chapter 28. This is, this is a place where this idea is just crystallized for us. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion and frustration and all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds. It's a harsh word. And I wonder what if, what if that were the last word of the new creation? What if that word carried into the new creation? 
See, we might be left to wonder, which is it for us, blessing or the curse? And I guess the answer would be yes, right? You'd be blessed some of the time and you'd be cursed some of the time. Sometimes you'd be rewarded for your goodness and sometimes you'd be punished for your badness. And of course, there would be all kinds of pressure on you to perform and to improve yourself and to be as careful about the rules as possible because you'd rather not be destroyed on account of your evil deeds. Now, it's not that Deuteronomy isn't telling us something incredibly true and important, right? Obedience is blessed and disobedience is cursed because God is good and holy and righteous and just and he wants us to flourish. And so he tells us how to live. And and so, yeah, according to the Bible's view of things, disobedience leads to curse. How could it not? Our sin against the God of perfect love and light and life inevitably leads to lovelessness and darkness and death. But get this, we believe in Christmas. We believe in the incarnation. In other words, we believe in Jesus Christ. The ultimate love, light and life stepped onto the stage of human history and lived in our place and loved in our place and faithfully obeyed perfectly in our place. He lived the perfect human life, truly loving God and others. He's the only one who really fulfilled Israel's call to be a blessing to the nations. And so he deserved nothing but perfect blessing. But at the end of his life, God, as Jesus Christ, takes all the Deuteronomy curses upon himself. And he does that because he had also taken upon himself all of your sin and my sin. He takes upon himself all our disobedience and all our unfaithfulness and all our failures to love. He takes upon himself the curse that all that must bring. On the cross, Jesus redeems us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. In our place, condemned he stood. And so here at the end of the Bible, we learn that the curse has been eternally removed. Removed from you and from me and from all of God's good world. And that's why we sing. No more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing flow far as the curse is found. Family, the world is full of darkness and terrors, but the light has come and the light will come again. And in the meantime, we're invited to follow him wherever he goes. We're invited to follow him to the very end, trusting that he'll hold us through death and into the new world he's bringing. Behold, he makes all things new. Do you see how good it is? There's the the city descending from heaven. There's the new world to come, a world free of civil wars, a world in which men are less like lions, a world in which there are no pandemics, no pain, no more tears, no more death, no more curse, a world in which the dwelling place of God is with us, and we will be his people, and he will be with us as our God. Surely he is coming soon. Believe the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.